0: Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are a God who is in this place, that you are a God that moves in our lives, that you are a God that is not distant, but that you are a God who knows the names, the lives, the secrets of every single person in this room. And though that might be a scary thought to many of us, the fact that that is true shows that you are sovereign, it shows that you are in control, it shows that you care enough to know, and it shows that you see us. And that each individual in this room is not some insignificant part of a larger crowd. But though we are a part of something bigger than ourselves, we are extremely significant to you. I pray that we would make you significant to us this morning. And that you would speak. Holy Spirit, I ask you to bless the reading of your word. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well... Good morning. I feel like, um, with Michael and Josh, uh, gone that it's, you know, if it's just me and Mackenzie, um, leading the way, it's like mom and dad aren't home. And so, um, let's party, right? Let's do this. Um, I'm in. Okay. We're not recording this, right? That's okay. If you're uh, listening in on our TV ministry, this would be not a good Sunday to call in. I'm just kidding. Okay. Anyway. All right. So, um, I have a, 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 a question that I want us to, to ponder, but before I, I ask that uh, question, I, I want to tell you about a little bit about myself. I, uh, I have a unique um, obsession, not a unique obsession, I'm sorry, not a unique obsession, but a, um, an obsession that you kind of need to know about if you, if you want to know about me, and that is that I love movies. I'm a big fan of of movies. Just about any genre of movie I like. I could name the ones I don't like, but I'd be stepping on some toes. I don't want to make enemies this early. So, But I, 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 I love movies. And one of my favorite kinds of movies growing up were 90s coming-of-age movies. Does anybody know what we want to talk about? Like 90s coming-of-age movies. Now, I have to admit, 90s coming-of-age movies were before I came of age. And so, uh, I, so I, I don't know. Like, the staff always makes fun of me because Home Alone 1 is older than I am. Um, but... Uh, which is about how young I am, not how old they are. But, uh, but uh, 90s coming of age movies. And the reason why I really like these movies is because it gives us a look into the life of usually in the 90s, usually um, um, young, uh, like preteen, maybe teenager, but, but preteen boys and, and how they grow. At least that's my observance. Being a, 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 a male, I probably, you know, just all the female ones went over my head. And so all the ones that I know uh, were about uh, preteen boys and, and, and some sort of life lesson that they learned, some sort of significant event, some sort of challenge, whatever it is that turns them into a more mature version of themselves. For instance, one of my favorite movies is The Sandlot. We've got Sandlot fans. Yes, I love The Sandlot. I love the same lot. Um, I, I told college students, I used to tell college students that the reason why I wear unbuttoned, button up shirts a lot is because of Benny the Jet. Okay? Like, I, I, the Benny the Jet Rodriguez wore unbuttoned shirts, and so now I do that because he's my hero. Um, uh, and I actually did own a pair of PF Flyers once. Um, and so uh, I'm making movie references that are going, I shouldn't be doing this. And so, anyway. In the sand lot, what happens is a group of, of, of pre-team boys, especially one guy that we think named Smalls, um, who's a scared, timid kid, no friends, moves to this new town and, and starts playing baseball, something he has no business doing at first, with these kids who are really good at baseball. The problem is is that there is a massive, what we think of at least, a massive dog, owned by the voice of Darth Vader, on the other side of the fence. No more movie references, I apologize. But um, where, uh, he's on the other side of the fence, and that wouldn't necessarily be a problem unless you hit a home run. And if you hit a home run and the ball goes over the fence, you're done for the day because that ball is is gone, because there's a beast on the other side of the fence. And so they go through this whole process of, of defeating the beast, these clever, crazy, different things that, you know, like bring back 80s and 90s nostalgia, like the, the little toys that they use to try to get this back and the plans and, and stuff. And finally, um, uh, Benny, um, in his PF Flyers, jumps over the fence, grabs the ball, runs out, and the beasts chase them all through town. It's crazy. I'm not going to spoil the story, but everybody survives, which is good. Um, but also, we learn that they grew up. We learn that they, that they became more mature because at the end of this particular movie, it kind of tells us what they've done. Right, and at the final scene of the Sandlot, if you haven't seen it yet, then that's your fault. But um, the final scene—the final scene of Sandlot—is—is—is is, is Benny is a professional baseball player for the L.A. Dodgers, and he's going to steal home. And Smalls, the guy he took under his wing, is the announcer for the L.A. Dodgers. And so they, he says, "This experience together made them and who they made them into who they would become, into the more mature version of themselves." The other movie. And I promise we're going to talk about Scripture here in a second. But the other movie is Little Rascals. You might know Little Rascals. I love Little Rascals. It's so good, mainly because the main character's name is Spanky, and I thought that was hilarious, right? And, but, and so Spanky and, and his friends start this club called the He-Man Woman Haters Club, okay? Don't judge them. They're like five, okay? And so, um, but they, they start this incredibly sexist club um, where, where they want to keep out the girls, right? They're going to keep out the girls. We are, we're making a vow with each other that we will never be interested in girls. We will never associate with them, whatever. The problem is, is that a key member has a girlfriend, and he's trying to keep it a secret, but he has a date. He tries to, or at least he takes his girlfriend on a date in the clubhouse, right, of the He-Man Woman Haters Club, which, why would you go on a date to the He-Man Woman Haters Club if you're a woman? I don't know. That's weird, but uh, anyway, so... I'm asking dating questions of five-year-olds, and that's weird. But, uh, and so, so they go on, and they do this, and, they, and they, they, they go through all these things in life, and all these changes, and, and this story happens where they're, they're, they're going um, um, uh, on this big uh, race, really, like a go-kart race around town as part of this big fair this town has. And the winner of this race gets this really awesome car driven by their hero driver, who they assume is a dude. And what they find out after they win the race is that it's Reba McIntyre. It's incredible. <laughs> she's got all kinds of talents, right? But the main thing is they find out it's a woman. And they're like, you're a woman? And she's like, yeah, right? And so at the end of the movie, you see them as a more mature version of themselves, maybe not biologically, but, um, but spiritually and emotionally, because they have this in the what was the He-Man's what, Woman Haters Club, you've got each guy in the room sitting next to some girl. Right? And so now they, their fear of girls, that normal fear of girls that happens in young boys is now gone, and now they're willing, willing to associate with the opposite sex. Right? And so that's, that's how we know that they have matured. And so the question I want us to ask, and I, I, I know I have ridiculous illustrations, but the, the question that I want to ask is what makes a mature church? Not necessarily how does a church mature in, in the sense of, I'm not really talking about what happens in the life of a church that leads it to maturity, but how do we look at a church and tell if it's mature or not? What are the signs of maturity in a church? And this brings us to our text in 1 Corinthians. We've been in this series for a while. Excuse me. We've been in this series for a while. And, uh, and, 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 and so you know a lot of the background of 1 uh, Corinthians and the church in Corinth, but I'm going to give you a, a little bit. And, and lately we've been talking about prophecy and tongues, right? We've been, I don't know, like two or three weeks, I think, on, on, on prophecy and tongues going back and forth. Paul is talking about their worship, and specifically their gathered worship. And he's talking about the role of prophecy and tongues. And, and what we mean by prophecy here, what Paul means by prophecy is not fortune telling. It's not speaking the future. It's not doing anything like that. What he means is speaking God's word to people who need to hear God's word. So it, it might even be better for us to say that he's talking about speaking prophetically. Okay, so if I was to prophesy, which I am doing right now, if I was to prophesy, then, um, then I am building up the church by by speaking God's Word to people who need to hear God's Word, which includes everybody, Christian or not, right? By tongues, what we mean is a prayer language, not necessarily a, a, another language like an earthly language like German, Spanish, or anything like that. What we mean is a a, a, a unintelligible, uh, an understandable language if you are not God. Now, we were talking about what, what Paul says in Romans 8, when we pray and we, we lack words because of who we are, the Spirit groans on our behalf. That this is a, this is a prayer language that, that Paul recognizes as something, and Paul even says that he does this, um, where it's just him and God, and he might not even know what he is saying, but it's God knows. And so Paul, it's important to notice, it's important to, to point out that Paul doesn't knock either one of these things. Both of these are good in the life of a disciple of Jesus. Both of these are helpful and good, but one of them for the gathered church, for the ecclesia, for the gathered church is more beneficial. And the reason, uh, and and the one that is more beneficial is prophecy, and the reason is more beneficial is because it builds others up. We've already talked about this. This is past sermons um, that Josh has done. You can look those up online. So that's where we are here. And so now we got to talk about what makes a uh, mature church. And so in verse 20, chapter 14, verse 20, Paul says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. And so, Paul, this is a weird passage, um, and it's a hard passage to interpret, which I feel like might have been on purpose on Josh's part. But, uh, but it, there's, there's, uh, this is a hard passage to interpret, because if you're reading this carefully, then what you will notice is that uh, Paul will talk about how a speaking in tongues is a, uh, a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers but for believers. So the prophecy is not for unbelievers, but then he just goes and says that unbelievers and outsiders will benefit from our prophecy. And so scholar after scholar after scholar has tried to, to, to interpret this passage well, and this is a quote that Paul is, is taking from Isaiah 28. And in Isaiah 28, um, God is threatening or, or promising to um, confuse his people because of their disobedience with foreign tongues. Now, that, in that one, we are talking about earthly languages. We're talking about um, foreign languages that the Hebrew people don't understand just to cause more confusion as a punishment for, for, for not being faithful to God. And so why Paul takes this passage from the Old Testament and applies it here? is questionable to those of us who just don't quite understand, and that's okay. I just want us to all be okay right here. That This is a tough passage to read that doesn't necessarily um, make sense to us unless, unless we um, probably are in the mind of Paul. And so scholar after scholar after scholar has, has tried and tried and tried to, uh, to, to determine what this means. And really, it's just, it's just like a jungle out there, man. Like it's, it, uh, Every scholar disagrees. They've all got different points. And so in order uh, uh, to, to not muddy the waters and to focus on what is important, I want to focus on the, uh, the first thing that Paul says and then the last thing that Paul says. And so the first thing that Paul says is, Do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. And the last thing that Paul says in verse 24, uh, I'm sorry, verse 23, is if therefore the whole church, the whole ecclesia comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Paul's concern here is not the unholiness or the, unworth, or, or, or the unbeneficialness, or, or I don't even think that's a word, but whatever. Uh, the, he's not knocking, speaking in tongues. He's uplifting or he's putting on a pedestal um, prophecy because it builds up the church and it builds up those who are outsiders. It builds up those who are un believers and here's here's why he is saying this in the church in Corinth, it is likely that they had a problem in corporate worship like this which I shouldn't say like this in the first century the church didn't necessarily look like this this is a this is a, a probably a smaller group of people gathered in homes breaking bread together having so, so if you're part of a, a small group in your home or if you're part of a CG college students or if you're if you're doing something like that that's probably more like it was here and so you imagine this 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 group of people gathered um, together as the church breaking bread together doing um, um, what they They do what they call corporate worship and, and all this stuff. And they've got some people, um, maybe a lot of people, who are, who are breaking out in the middle of that corporate gathering and speaking in tongues. And when I say, whatever you're thinking about speaking in tongues, that's what I'm talking about. Um, and so they're, they're speaking in tongues out loud, and, and, and it's, it's unintelligible to anybody unless there's an interpreter. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, or maybe last week. And, so, uh, and then, we, uh, and then and, and it's the only person who can really understand what's going on is God. And, and so really, it's only beneficial to the prayer and God. And so everybody around, including those who are new to church, those who don't know exactly what's going on in church, those who are new to the family, or those who are just checking Jesus out, look at this guy and are not benefited. They look at these folks, and and there's nothing wrong with them, but it's not helpful to those who are around them. And so Paul says, I do this, he says this in a passage just a little bit before this, he says, I do this more than you guys. I have a private prayer language. But I would rather, while gathered with the group of people, while gathered with the church, with the ecclesia, which means gathered church, gathered people, is... What I would rather do is prophesy, speak intelligibly, um, speak in a way that can benefit people, speak in a way that can change people, speak in a way that can build each other up, that can edify people. I would rather do that when we are gathered publicly. And so again, Paul is not knocking tongues, but Paul is, is building up or, or he is, he is um, using prophecy as an example of what makes a mature church. And so what does make immature church? What's Paul's point here? Because I actually don't think it's about tongues and prophecy. I think those are two examples specific to the church in Corinth and maybe other churches around the world. But to every church in the world, it's not really just about tongues and prophecy. What is it about? I think what it's about is being others-focused, By being focused outside of ourselves. I think what Paul says that you should not be immature in your thinking, but mature in your thinking. What he is saying is that you should start worrying about each other and the outsider and the unbeliever. That a mature church, a church that looks like Jesus, is one that seeks the benefit of the other, not the self. This is a challenging word for most North American churches because most North American churches are concerned with one thing and one thing only, and that is survival. Most of us are overly concerned with keeping this organization afloat, that we have failed to be outward focused. We have failed to seek the benefit of the, those around us, those outsiders and believers and those of us on an individual level, on an individual level, some of us are so worried about what I get out of this church, how it feeds me, how I'm built up, that we forget that it is our calling and we are we it is our calling and it is what we were made for, what we were saved for, to benefit others. To first the family of believers and then the outside world. I love Mackenzie just said it a minute ago. She, she said she would wager that loving God without loving people is impossible. And what the Corinthian church has right now is a problem of people going, Hey, look how much I love God. And not enough loving people. And we know this church, this church in Corinth was terrible at loving each other and those on the outside. We've already talked about that. So why is it so important for a church a mature church. Why is it so important that a mature church is one that is others' focus? Well, maturity, by definition, and I don't have a dictionary definition, but I have kind of a common sense uh, definition, is a maturity is you arriving, something, an organism arriving at what it was meant to be. Right? So, so when you were raising your children, you were not raising a child. You are raising a future adult. Right? When you were coaching Upward basketball. You are not coaching six-year-old basketball players. You're coaching people who will use basketball in the future to tell others about Jesus. When you are um, uh, when you are uh, uh, raising a pet, when you are raising a pet, which some people use like talk about pets like they talk about children. That's annoying. Don't do that. But um, but when you are raising a pet, right? when you're feeding and keeping an animal alive in your house, that's what we'll say, okay? Um, then what you are doing is you are, you are helping that. Let's say when you were training a dog, you were not training a puppy. You were training the mature dog in the future that whenever you say whatever you're going to say, it'll do whatever it is you want him or her to do, right? And so that, that's, that's the maturity. That's what maturity is, is that what we are supposed to become when we arrive there we are mature. And so how do I know? Where am I getting this idea that that maturity is in in church speaking and speaking about church is when we are others focused? Because it's where Jesus and God and everything in the Bible starts. The entire narrative of scripture is others focused. I mean, you've got a God who is perfectly sufficient in and of himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, a, a divine community that, in a way, you could argue is others-focused in itself. But, um, but he, he is by himself. He is the only thing that exists, the only being that exists. And he decides, not because he's lonely, not because he, doesn't, not because he needs somebody, not because he's bored, but because he's um, so others-focused, so filled with love that that outpouring of love leads to the creation of the universe and the creation of man. And then you've got, fast forward a little bit, and then you've got a man named Abraham. And, and, and God sees Abraham and says, you know what, I'm going to use this guy for a big, big, big project, right? And so I'm going, to, I'm going to call Abraham, and I'm going to send him. But what does he say to Abraham? He says, I'm going to make you into a nation. I'm going to make you into a family. I'm going to make you into a nation to bless all other nations. And then you get to Jesus. And Jesus is an example of an others-focused God where God decides to to become man and to visit us in our muck, in our mire, in our garbage, in our sin. And he recruits 12 guys to help him on this uh, mission of starting a global movement to save the world. And he calls these guys, and the first thing that he says to them, he says, hey, I want you to follow me, but here's what's going to happen when you follow me. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Meaning, you follow me, and we're going to be really others-focused. And then Jesus lives his life and does his ministry, and disciples the disciples, and he teaches them what it, uh, what it means to, be, um, uh, uh, to follow Jesus, what it means to be a part of this thing that God is doing on earth with his people. And, and then uh, at the end of this ministry, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. We're going to be others-focused. And then the Acts 1 version is, you will be my witnesses in all of, uh, uh, ju- all of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, where others focused. And then you've got, the- we see that this is how the movement perpetuated. This is how this happened. This is how we are all here today, is because somewhere in history, people started making disciples who would make disciples who would make disciples. We see this when Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy. He says, be strengthened then, my child. Paul writing to Timothy, be strengthened then, my child in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And, uh, And what you have learned from me in the presence of many witnesses, go and find other guys to teach who can teach others also. You're others focused. If you are a follower of Jesus, then your life is no longer about you. It is for the glory of God and for the good of others. And so if that is the sign of a mature disciple, that is also the sign of a mature church, gathered disciples, that as an organism, as a family, we are a church that is others focused. It is in the church's DNA to be others focused. So what does this mean? For us practically. For Paul, his his message, his his example here is tongues versus prophecy. And he says, somebody's gonna walk into your house someday, and somebody's gonna be speaking in tongues, and one guy's gonna be like, These people are nuts. I'm not coming back here. It just didn't make sense to them that what we were doing in here didn't make sense to the outside world. And they said, Man, you're nuts. Here's 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 the deal. You've probably heard it said, and I think rightly, that Christians ought to be different from the rest of the world, right? We do a pretty poor job of it, but that is who we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be different. And you've also heard it said that the gospel is never going to make sense to this world. And that's true. In fact, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians. The gospel will never make sense to the world. It's folly to human reason, to cultural reason. But that's not really what Paul's talking about here. What Paul is talking about is being a church that when people walk in, they see what we do, and they hear well, the kind of God that we worship, and they think, this makes sense. And they're not, like, Paul talks about somebody being overwhelmed and falling on his face, so hopefully they're not just walking in going, this makes sense. But that's what we ought to that's what people ought to, to think when they come in here. That they should hear the, uh, uh, that we preach a God who loves them. And when they are in this building or in our homes or in our lives, they know that they are loved by us. They should hear us preach about a God who sacrifices. And they should be able to see us sacrifice for each other and for them. They should not have to walk into this room and try to figure out what it is that we're doing. They should not have to walk into this room and think, man, I've heard good things about Jesus, but these people don't seem to know about those things about Jesus. When I was in college, um, I had a friend named Steve, and I was a part of um, uh, this. uh, It was was right after I became a Christian. I was a part of our on-campus ministry. BCM. It's BSM in Texas, but in Arkansas it's BCM. I uh, was just on campus ministry, and, and uh, we got to know this guy named Steve. He was a uh, sophomore when I was a senior, and, uh, and he was an atheist. He was born and raised um, atheist, had a, a, had a dad who was actually a card carrying member of the Ku Klux Klan, um, and, and was not, this guy was not like Jesus, let's just say that. Um, uh, uh, and, and he was farthest thing from churchy kid. Uh, and he was, he, was, he was an outspoken atheist, which even, you know, in Arkansas, it's the Bible Belt. It takes some guts to be an outspoken atheist. And so um, he, uh, he, he's saying all these things. He's doing all these things and, 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 and denouncing Jesus and saying he doesn't believe it. we believe and, and stuff. And, uh, and so we, we start hanging out with this guy, naturally. And so we start hanging out with this guy, inviting him to go play disc golf. If you've never played disc golf, if you want to disciple people, take them to play disc golf. It's the best. It takes forever. Um, <laughs> They're like, yeah, you want to meet up? It's like, yeah, I got like 30 minutes. All right, let's go play disc golf. That's great. And you got a four-hour conversation. Boom, they're trapped. All right. So we start hanging out with Steve. And, 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 and before you know it, he's coming to our worship gatherings as an atheist Um, and, and, and here's the greatest thing about it. He's inviting other people to our worship gatherings as an atheist. Like I wasn't inviting people to church, but the atheist guy was right. And so, uh, he's inviting these other people. And We start to ask him, Steve, what the heck, man? Like we get like, you, you'll come play disc golf with us. We get that. You'll do this, you know, have fun with us, you know, whatever it is, play basketball. I don't know, but you're coming to our Wednesday night gatherings. You're coming to our Thursday night gatherings. You're you're coming with us to church on Sunday mornings. What gives And he's like, I don't believe a word you say. But you guys are the nicest people on campus. So I'm going to hang out with y'all. And then eventually, after I graduated, eventually, I got a call. uh, I think probably in in February or March of 2014. 2014. I get a call uh, from Steve. And, uh, it's, it's, I've graduated college by then and it's like 10 o'clock. So I'm in bed and, you know, he's still in college. So he's like, yeah, what's up? It's it's still afternoon. Um, and so (laughs) I'm like, what do you want, Steve? Uh, and, and he, uh, he, 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 he says, Hey man, I just wanted you to know, you gave me a Bible my sophomore year of college. Uh, is the Bible that you grew up with and it had your name in it, had all your notes in it and you apologized for that, but you know, whatever. You gave me this Bible and I started hanging out with you guys and, and started to get to know you guys and, and really was kind of focused on you, focused on the way you treated me and, and stuff and, uh, and then kind of started to overhear some of the things that y'all were singing about, some of the things y'all's preachers were preaching about and stuff and, and uh, I just want you to know uh, that I'm going to be baptized this Easter. I mean, mm. this guy was just, he was an atheist. And I don't know, like, that happens all the time. I get that. And I'm not diminishing that. Anytime somebody is saved, it's an amazing, we throw a party, right? But this guy was, this guy was an atheist. God didn't make sense to him one bit. In fact, it seemed impossible that there would be a God. But he walked in to our ecclesia, And he saw the message we preached, though he didn't believe it, and he saw the way we lived and the way we interacted with each other and the way we treated him. And he thought, eventually, this makes sense. And then eventually in his life, there was some moment where he knew that all his secrets were disclosed, that all his sin was known about, that he could not hide that anymore from the internal creator God. And that, that, didn't, that was a actually good news for him because he was ready to surrender his life for this God, for this Jesus, for this Savior. And so I don't, I don't know if he literally fell on his feet, but he had that moment where he fell, where he, at least metaphorically, fell on his face and worshiped God. And said, The only thing that makes sense to me, God, is following you. Let us be a church that when people walk in, it makes sense to them what we preach and what we do. Let me pray. Father, I thank you that you are not a selfish being. I thank you that you are not a God who keeps to himself. But you are a God who loves, loves so well. That you're a God who delights in us, that you are focused on us. I thank you for the message that is the cross, the the massive sign planted in the middle of history saying, I'm coming after you. I just thank you for that, Father. I pray that we as a church would be an others focused church, that each individual in this room would learn and continue to learn that following Jesus and even just being human, what we were created for was for a life primarily lived for the sake of others. Let us follow your example, Jesus. And let those who are in this room who don't know you are just checking you out we unsure about this whole Christianity thing, unsure about this church thing. Let them know that they are loved by you where they are. They are loved by you no matter what they're going through. They are loved by you no matter where they're from, what they're struggling with. They are loved by you right there. And Father, we admit that we are broken. And so we ask you to help us love them like you love them. Father, I thank you for the cross. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.